All right, well, good evening once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. Genesis 6. Genesis 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Well, we have just entered into Genesis chapter 6, but that's not all we have entered into. We've also entered into one of the most controversial portions of Scripture in the Bible. The whole controversy of Genesis 6, verses 1 through 9 or so, 11, but right here especially, the controversy in the first few verses revolves around just who are the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, there are two main views, each held by very godly, very sound and well-respected Bible teachers. The first view is, sons of God is a reference to the godly line of Seth, or, in other words, believers. And daughters of men is a reference to the ungodly line of Cain, or unbelievers. And so they say, what's in view here is believers marrying unbelievers. The second view says, no, sons of God is a reference to angels, and daughters of men is a reference to human women. And so what's in view here, they say, is fallen angels cohabitating with earthly women. Let's look at the first one. Those who hold to the interpretation that sons of God is a reference to believers and daughters of men is a reference to unbelievers point out that in Genesis 4, we saw really the lineage of Cain. And then in Genesis 5, the genealogy of Seth. So it's kind of normal, they say, to just bring that into chapter 6 and see this as the two lines intermarrying, where you have believers marrying unbelievers, which, by the way, God prohibits in Deuteronomy 7 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Further, they point out that the term sons of God is used in the New Testament to describe or denote believers. And so they say, well... Because you have grounds in the New Testament to define sons of God as believers, then it's really biblical to bring that term over into the Old Testament right here in chapter 6 of Genesis, apply it as believers, sons of God, which means the daughters of men would be unbelievers. And you have these, again, this marrying of believers and unbelievers. Well, let me say this. There are several problems with that view. First of all, why were there only the sons of Seth believers? and only the daughters of Cain, unbelievers. I mean, what about the daughters of Seth and the sons of Cain? If we're talking about believers marrying unbelievers, why not, doesn't it just say, you know, when people began to multiply on the earth, some of the sons and daughters of Seth began to marry some of the sons and daughters of Cain. That would really lend credence to the whole believers marrying unbelievers interpretation. But also, why would a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever produce unnatural children. In verse 4 we read, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Furthermore, why would believers marrying unbelievers make God so angry that he wiped out the population of almost the entire earth except for eight people, no one his family? I mean, God is not happy when believers marry unbelievers, but that's not ground to wipe out the whole earth. 
The second problem with believers marrying unbelievers' view is that while it's true that the term sons of God is used in the New Testament to describe believers, it is never used in the Old Testament to describe believers. In fact, the phrase sons of God only appears three other times in the entire Old Testament, all of them in the book of Job. Job 1 verse 6, Job 2 verse 1, and then Job 38 verse 7. And in each of those passages, now I'll let you run those down on your own, but in each of those passages, the phrase sons of God is a clear reference to angels. Clear reference to angels. So much so that the NIV simply drops the sons of God phrase in favor of the word angels. One example, Job 1 verse 6, the NIV translates that one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Again, the New International Version. Now, those who, that hold to the view that sons of God refers to people and not angels will point you to Luke chapter 3, verse 38, where Adam himself is called the son of God. But rather than prove their point, that one scripture actually helps to refute it. You say, how? Well, what do Adam and angels have in common? Think about it. What do Adam and angels have in common. I'll help you. They were all created directly by God. Angels weren't born. Adam wasn't born. They were the direct creations of God. Look at Luke 3, verse 38, quickly. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ traced all the way back to Adam, the first man, to prove that Jesus was a son of man, a descendant of the human race, and therefore a kinsman redeemer, a goel, who is able to redeem us because he is one of us. He's a relative, all right? Not to get into the whole book of Ruth tonight, but that's where it all comes from. But if you look at the genealogy in Adam, uh, in Adam, in uh, Luke chapter 3, of, of, it's really of Adam, basically, all the way back, Jesus all the way back to Adam. You notice that it says this, this one was born the son of this one, the son of that one, verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Because all those descendants before Adam were born normally. They had a mother, they had a father. Adam was a direct creation of God. He was made out of the dust of the earth. He didn't have a mom or a dad. Did he have a belly button? Probably. And maybe not, we don't know. But again... Christians are called sons of God. I'm talking about both men and women. We're both called sons of God in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, let me help you again, because we are the direct creation of God through the new birth. Believers in Christ are born of the Spirit, right? John 3, some translations translate that, are born from above. And as such, Paul, as Paul puts it, we are now new creations. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So that's one of the reasons we are called the sons of God, because, again, we are the direct creation of God. Uh, we weren't born into the kingdom of God through a mom and dad, of course, physically on the earth, but we, we were not born into the family of God through the regular means by which we were born onto the earth. It was through a direct creation of God, the new birth. So... You may have guessed by this time that I hold to the second view of this passage. That sons of God is a reference to angels and daughters of men is a reference to human women. Why do I hold to that view? Well, there's a number of reasons. The first one 
or the first reason that I hold to that view is, is the one we just talked about. Because the term sons of God is always used in the Old Testament to refer to angels. However, this in and of itself wouldn't be enough to convince me that Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4 is talking about fallen angels or demons coming down to the earth to cohabitate with human women. What really, what really drives this view home to me is that this incident mentioned in Genesis 6 is also mentioned not once but three times in the New Testament. Once by Jude and twice by Peter, once in each of his two epistles. Turn to Jude. There's only one chapter, so Jude chapter 1. And keep in mind, Jude is talking about what we're reading in Genesis 6. Jude, verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The point Judah is making is that fallen angels left what he calls their proper domain or their own, their own abode or home. In other words, they left heaven. They came to earth to commit sexual immorality by going after strange flesh. What does that mean? Well, he defines what he's got in mind kind of by using Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. How that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah were primarily homosexuals there, militant homosexuals. And the idea is that for a, a homosexual sex is unnatural. It's strange, okay? As Jude puts it, uh, it's strange flesh, okay? And just like homosexual sex is unnatural, so is sex between a fallen angel and a human woman. Now, those who disagree with this interpretation claim that angels are spirit beings, and therefore sexless, which means they're incapable of having sex with women, much less producing children with them. Well, look, we know that angels can take human form and have done so many times in the Old Testament. In fact, in Genesis 18, you have to turn there, remember how one day two angels and the Lord Jesus in a pre-incarnate appearance all showed up at Abraham's doorstep one day. Remember that? And at one point, the two angels went on to Sodom, and the Lord Jesus stayed back and entered into this conversation with Abraham, who tried to talk him out of destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, because the Lord said, we're here because the evil of those cities has come up before heaven, and you know we're here to wipe them out. And Abraham tries to bargain, because he knows that a lot. His nephew lives in Sodom. In fact, he's an alderman. Okay? And he's trying to intercede on behalf of Lot primarily, that the Lord would, you know, Lord, if there was 40 righteous in the city, would you destroy for 40? I mean, what about the sake of the 40? I'll spare for 40. Well, Lord, what about 30? If there's only 30 righteous, will you spare for the sake of the, yes, for the sake of the 30? Go all the way down to 10, I think, okay? You know, what about 10? Yeah, there's 10, I'll, I'll spare the cities for the sake of the 10. But while Abraham and the Lord are discussing this, the two angels go on to Sodom, and once they get there, the men of Sodom, wanted to rape them, remember? So these two angels had taken human form, and these men of Sodom didn't suspect they were any different from any other 
men. They can look pretty good when they take on human form. You say, yeah, that's Old Testament stuff. Really? Remember what Paul, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Remember what Paul said in Hebrews 13, verse 2? He said, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. Be nice to strangers, okay? Especially if they glow at all. <laughs> no, I don't, they don't glow. That would be easy then, you know? I know some guys in the church who have claimed that they have been visited by angels. Didn't know it at the time. But looking back and the events that happened, I think they have some pretty compelling evidence. But uh, Paul says this happens. Angels can take human form, and they can completely fool us into thinking they're just ordinary people. So to say that angels are incapable, though, of having sex with women is something the Bible never says in history refutes. I mean, there have been many documented, documented accounts of women in the occult who have had sex with demons. I've read a few myself, okay? But many women in the occult have testimonies where and a lot of them have gotten saved, and so now they're speaking about these kind of things. But uh, many women in the occult, Satanism and so on, have actually had sex with demons. And some would say, wait a minute, though. Are you telling us that they actually had children by these demons? Hey, look, I don't understand how it all works. But if the interpretation that I'm giving you is the right one from Genesis 6, verse 4, then yes. Then yes. And I believe it is. I believe that these are, the sons of God are fallen angels who came down to cohabitate with human women and bore these children that were unnatural. In fact, once again, verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Now, in the book of 1st Enoch, and there's three Enochs, okay, books attributed to Enoch. They're not scriptural. They're apocryphal. But like the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which contain some good, solid historical information that's not inspired by God, but good history, okay, accurate history, it could be that there is some information in the books of Enoch that are also accurate and uh, historical in what they present. Listen to what, I'm going to read you just a little bit from the first book of Enoch. And it came to pass... When the children of men had multiplied, that in those days there were born to them beautiful and comely women. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. They took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go uh, into them and to defile themselves with them. Uh, and they taught them charms and enchantments. And they became pregnant, so that they bare great giants. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. End quote. Now, obviously, the writer, and again, it's not inspired. I'm not holding this up like scripture. I'm just saying, though, the writer of this book, and this dates at least back to 300 B.C., is no doubt picking up on what we read in Genesis 6. And at very least, at very least, he, who was Jewish, these are Jewish books, believed that the interpretation of what was being taught in Genesis 6 was that fallen angels came down, married human women, and produced these giants, these unnatural offspring, okay? 
Now, let me just say this. Once again, those who don't believe Genesis 6 is talking about fallen angels getting married, having sex with human women. Uh, they point to what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 30. And they say, look, Jesus said to us in Matthew 22, verse 30, for in the resurrection, now he's talking about, you know, when we die and we are risen from the dead and we're going to live in heaven. He said, for in the resurrection, they, you know, believers, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God. They say, look, angels, okay, don't marry. And Jesus is saying that they're sexless anyways. Well, first of all, he's not saying they're sexless. Where does it say here in Matthew 22, verse 30, that angels are sexless, that they are incapable of having sexual relations if they desire to? And by the way, he is simply saying that faithful angels, angels of God in heaven, don't marry or are given in marriage. It doesn't say anything about rebellious, fallen angels. In fact, Henry Morris in his commentary on Genesis, said this, and I quote, he said, when Jesus said that the angels in heaven do not marry, this does not necessarily mean that those who have been cast out of heaven were incapable of doing so. Look, when you talk, when it says here the sons of God, and I believe it's a reference to angels, angels are always spoken of in the masculine, okay, with the personal pronouns he, him, and so on. You find no female angels in heaven i'm sorry to hallmark and everybody else who's tried to present the you know touched by an angel and all of that they need to read their bibles a little better because you'll find no women angels in the scriptures they are always called the sons of god they are always spoken of in the masculine sense which again to me answers this idea of why is it only the sons of god or the sons of seth who are godly you know what about the daughters of Seth and vice versa? I mean, it's like, you know, it's because this is speaking of angels, and all angels are sons, are, you know, masculine. All right. And I prayed that God would help us apply today uh, something that we're going to learn. I, God bless you if you can do that, okay? Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just teaching the passage, okay? I'm not saying there's going to be a lot of you here to take with you and go, wow, I'm really fed tonight. I'm going to go out there and really... Just live for the Lord now. It's just so, hey, we are, it is what it is, guys, all right? So getting back to our text in Genesis. Verse 1, once again, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And we'll talk about that verse next week. Verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, after what? After what is coming in chapter 6 or the flood. So there were giants on the earth before the flood. And once again, after the flood. And I'll talk about that in a moment. So there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. The word giants in verse 4 is Nephilim. Nephilim. And it is a word that literally means fallen ones. Fallen ones. I personally believe that these Nephilim or fallen ones were actually half human, half demon hybrids. Genesis 6.4 goes on to say, The daughters of men bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of 
renown. And once again, the scriptures teach that these giants were on the earth before and after the flood. These would include Goliath and his brothers. If you study about Goliath and his brothers, you realize that these guys, uh, nine and a half feet tall Goliath was, uh, there was one king uh, that lived in the land that Israel conquered whose bed was 18 feet long. So these were big people, all right? But Goliath and his brothers were giants, and they had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. So <laughs> a little hard to buy gloves and shoes, but you get the idea that something strange is going on. See, these were not normal, big, but not, you know, there's a lot of big guys, not nine and a half foot tall, but uh, something was going on here, okay, genetically. Something genetically was off, and I believe it was because they were half human, half demon. Uh, this group would also include the Anakim and the Emim, people that lived in the land of Canaan. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 28, the children of Israel is, is really arguing with Moses how they can't go into the land to conquer it because the report has come back. The Anakim are there and so on. The giants, right? How can we go up? Verse 28, our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Big people build big buildings. These cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. The Anakim were a race of giants that lived in the land of Canaan. Also, Deuteronomy 2, verse 10. The Emim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. So the Anakim were the only giants in the land. And by the way, I don't think that all of the demonic hybrids necessarily had to be giants, but they were the men of renown, the giants were, so they're the ones that are mentioned. And this, I believe, guys, is one of the reasons people say, well, you know, God had Joshua and the children of Israel wipe out all the people of the land of Canaan. That sounds cruel and barbaric. I believe one of the reasons that God told Joshua and the children of Israel utterly wipe out the people living in Canaan was because the people of the land had become corrupted with demon seed. They had become corrupted with demon seed. And that, guys, is exactly what I believe is going on in chapter 6 of Genesis. Satan had his angels. Listen to me. Sounds incredible. Satan had his angels come down to the earth to try to commingle and corrupt the human race with demon seed. Why? It was a preemptive strike by the devil to infect the human race with demon seed so that the deliverer, remember the promise in 3.15? Eve, you've, you know, you've, you've eaten the forbidden fruit and the human race has now fallen. You've given yourselves over to the control of the devil who is now the god of this world. But someday I'm going to send to you from the seed of the woman a deliverer, a Messiah, who will crush the serpent's what? Head. Will end his authority. The head is a symbol of authority. And the devil, in a preemptive strike, tried to infect the human race with demon seed so that the deliverer could not come who would eventually crush Satan's head or authority and free the earth from his control. I mean, if Satan was successful in corrupting the whole human race, there would be no way a Messiah could deliver the world from the authority of Satan, who was himself half demon. And guess what? Satan's plan almost worked. Almost worked. In Genesis 6, verse 7, we read, So the Lord said, I will destroy man 
whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, uh, thing, and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his genealogies. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. It says Noah was a just man, which means righteous. Why was he righteous? Why was he just? Because of his faith. And because he was a just man, because he believed in God, he lived a just or a righteous life. At a time when everything and everyone around him had become absolutely corrupted. We read again in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, as demons infected the human race, demons are you know, the, the epitome of evil, the epitome of lawlessness. So, you know, the more this went on, the more evil and corrupt the human race became. But notice what it says in verse 9, very pivotal verse. Noah was perfect in his generations. The word perfect comes from a Hebrew root that means uncontaminated. Uncontaminated. Noah and his family may have been the only ones left on the earth at this point, still pure and uncontaminated by demonic inbreeding, which would explain the flood. Now, <laughs> some people would say, well, that's ridiculous to believe that God brought the flood to purge the earth of demon half-breeds. Is it? Remember we said that this is mentioned three times in the New Testament, once in Jude and once in each of Peter's epistles. Turn to 1 Peter. Is it so ridiculous to think that God destroyed the earth with a flood because the earth had become corrupted with demon seed? I know some people would say it's crazy, but I feel I've got biblical justification for believing that. We talked about Jude, angels, who did not keep their proper domain, came down to the earth, went after strange flesh, and God judged them for that. They're kept in chains now, uh, in darkness, reserved for the judgment of the great day. Well, 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18. Peter is also mentioning what went on in Genesis 6. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached. Now, this is after he died on the cross. He went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. What did verse 3 say? Man's days will be 120 years. That was the length of time it took Noah to build the ark. So for 120 years, while Noah and his sons were building the ark, God was giving people a chance to repent. And Noah is called a preacher of righteousness in Scripture. So he's pounding away and preaching, no doubt, because I'm sure he was drawing a crowd. I'm sure tour buses were stopping. You know, look at this nut job. He's talking about something called rain. He's building this big boat. We don't know what he's talking about. Look at him, you know. And Noah's pounding, you know, the ark, putting it together and preaching while he's doing it, right? But Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now be careful you don't read this wrongly. 
and interpret it wrongly. Because people read this, verse 19, and he's, you know, by whom also he, Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient in the days of Noah. And people interpret that to mean, look, Jesus went down to hell and he preached to the people that died in the flood and gave them another chance to be saved. Well, where in the scriptures do we ever see anything like that? It is appointed for a person to die once, and then what happens? They get another chance? After that comes the judgment. Besides, guys, the word spirits here is never used of human beings. It's always used of angelic beings who were in prison. He preached them. The word preached there is not the Greek word we see that means to preach the gospel, euangelizomai. It is another Greek word, keruso. And it simply means to proclaim. What's going on here? You have these fallen angels that Jude says are chained, right? Who tried to corrupt the human race with demon seed to thwart the plan of God, keep the Messiah from being born, keep the serpent, Satan's head, from being crushed, keep the Messiah from taking back the world to God and giving us a kingdom someday to live in for all eternity. These angels, very vicious, powerful angels, they were thwarted. God didn't let the whole thing go on. They were chained in Hades. And Jesus, when he won his victory on the cross, went down into Hades, and he proclaimed to these fallen angels his victory. He didn't give anybody a second chance. He wasn't preaching to people that died in the flood. He was proclaiming to the angels his victory. His victory. Second Peter 2. Peter wants to hit this subject again. Apparently it's pretty important. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. Now again, he's talking about these angels that tried to corrupt the human race. And delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Let me stop there. Notice how Peter connects these angels who sinned with the flood. I mean, the connection is, is right there. And again, there's a connection because the angels that sinned were the ones who infected the human race with demon seed, and God had to destroy all flesh on the earth, except for Noah and his family, because of what Satan and his demons had done. Now look, I'm going to take this, if you're not already thinking I'm nuts, uh, yet I'm going to take it a little farther, okay? I'm going to take this a step farther. I don't believe this demonic contamination was limited to the human race. I believe it involved the animals on the earth as well. And if that's true, it explains why God completely wiped out everything he had made that lived on the earth, creeping things, beasts, all animals, and, of course, man. Everything that lived on land, including man, all except for Noah and his family. God wiped everything out. He wiped them all out because Satan had corrupted or contaminated animals and people with demon seed. Again, Genesis 6, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect. And again, we could translate that uncontaminated. In his generations... God supernaturally kept one generation, one genealogy pure. Noah's family, all the way back. 
Noah walked with God, and Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt or contaminated for what? All flesh, all flesh, which would be a reference to both animals and mankind, had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, guys, there are many ancient myths, stories, legends, whatever you want to call them, of demigods. It's all over the earth, these stories, of demigods on the earth at one point that were half man and half animal that I believe could be rooted in fact. In fact, it could be that this came about as a result of genetic manipulation as mankind opened the doors more and more to the demonic. And all you got to do is look at the cultures, okay, how demonic they were. They didn't start out that way because they started out, you know, God is the one who started the first culture on the face of the earth. So they started out with God's word. They started out with God's truth and so on. But you know how that goes. A people, a nation, slowly, if they open up more, look at our nation. The more we are opening doors to the demonic, turning away from God, getting away from the word, getting into the occult, what was used to be hidden, occult means hidden things, is now mainstream. The more we as a nation are opening the door to the occult, the more people are being hassled, oppressed, even possessed. It is changing the climate, the mentality of our nation. We are seeing more and more evil, more and more violence. It's all connected, all connected. But I believe that as mankind opened the doors more and more to the demonic in their cultures back then, that the demons used willing participants to harvest genetic material from their bodies to use to create half-human, half-animal creatures. In fact, in the seventh chapter of the book of Enoch, it says that the fallen angels also sinned, quote-unquote, against animals as well as against people which means they were violated too. In another non-inspired book, the book of Jasher, we read in chapter 4, verse 18, Then the sons of men began teaching the mixture of animals of one species with the other in order therewith to provoke the Lord, end quote. You see, as we've already studied Genesis 1, when God created everything, what did he say over and over again? Everything will bring forth after its kind. Reproduction will only take place within a kind, a species. One family or one kind can't mate with another. God has forbidden that. But the devil seems to have sent his demons into the world, fallen angels. And I believe, and I don't know all the ins and outs of this, guys, it seems, though, that the devil found willing participants. And we see in these ancient cultures how demonic the worship was, how they offered themselves to what we know as demons. They offered themselves to these demons. Women offering themselves to demons who then took, and and, and you have to understand something, angels are incredibly intelligent beings. I mean, I'm not saying that angels necessarily taught humans how to manipulate genetics, but they definitely found willing people who allowed them to take genetic material from animals and somehow splice it with the egg of a woman and produce these hybrid offspring. 
an ancient form of genetic engineering or what some have called transgenic modification of species. This was done by fallen angels to corrupt the human race and thwart the plan of God. Of course, God thwarted the plan and brought judgment on these angels, or at least they are chained until the judgment of the great day. Again, Jude verse 6, And the angels that did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So God is going to judge the angels that entered into this practice and... He eventually brought judgment upon the people that submitted to the whole thing by bringing judgment upon the whole world in the form of the flood, which we'll study next time. In an article that appeared in an online periodical in 2003 called Giants in the Earth. Now, this is what, this is what they believe happened. I'm not saying that it's accurate. I'm just saying that these people have studied this studied cultures, and here's what they've come up with, okay? An article called Giants in the Earth, it said, the Nephilim were genetically manufactured beings created from the genetic material of various pre-existing animal species. The fallen angels did not personally in interbreed with the daughters of men, but used their godlike intellect to delve into the secrets of Yahweh's creation and manipulate it to their own purposes. And the key to creating or recreating man, as we have discovered in the 20th century, is the human genome or DNA. Tom Horn, in his book, Apollyon Rising 2012, adds to this. He says, and I quote, This manipulation of living tissue by the fallen angels led to an unusual body made up of human and animal genetics known as the Nephilim an earth-born facsimile or fit extension into which they, fallen angels, could incarnate themselves. What's more, the long history of demonological phenomenon related to manipulation of biological matter suggests that versions of this curious activity have been ongoing ever since, end quote. That's why it says that these giants were in the earth before the flood and after. Because this went on afterwards. In certain cultures, you had, again, uh, opening the door to the demonic, uh, human women offering themselves as hosts for some kind of hybrid creature, which the devil then, his demons, were able to then take DNA from an animal, we'll say, and mix it with human DNA and create whatever. It was going on before the flood. It's been going on after the flood, and in fact, it's going on today. One of the hottest fields in genetics today is what's called transhumanism. Transhumanism. The online dictionary defines transhumanism this way. It is an international, cultural, and intellectual movement with an eventual goal of fundamentally transforming the human condition by developing and making widely available technologies to greatly enhance human intellectual, physical, and psychological capacities, end quote. I have seen this pursued in one of two ways, this transhumanism, genetically and then technologically. Let me read you just some quick little excerpts from some of the articles I've been reading on this subject, talking about, first of all, uh, splicing human DNA with animal DNA. How horrific does that sound? In fact, these creatures are called chimera. Chimera. You can look that up in the dictionary. Here's some little 
quotes from some of the articles I've been reading. Scientists have had some success with human-animal hybrid experiments. In 2003, Chinese scientists at the Shanghai Second Medical University fused human cells with rabbit embryos, according to National Geographic News. The embryos were given several days to develop before the scientists destroyed them to harvest stem cells. According to the report, researchers at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota were able to create pigs with human blood flowing through their bodies in 2004. The Post reported Stanford University biologist Irving Weissman helped other scientists make hybrid rodents, including mice that have up to 1% human brain cells in their skulls. Also, a researcher at the University of Nevada at Reno, Eshmael Zinjani, successfully grew mostly human livers in sheep. His goal was to make the humanized livers available for transplant in people. And that's why a lot of these geneticists are doing it. They want to somehow uh, help mankind. But you know how that goes. What some start off using for good often gets used for evil in the end. In 2008, British scientists produced human-animal hybrid embryos by inserting human DNA from a skin cell into a hollowed-out cow embryo. An electric shock then introduced or then induced the hybrid embryo to grow. London's Guardian reported the embryo 99.9% human and 0.1% animal grew for three days until it had 32 cells. Now, many are predicting that in just a few years, they're going to create a creature that is half human, half animal. So much so that this has caused, and I was reading a little bit about this also, this has created quite a, an ethical dilemma for a lot of states uh, who are rushing now to put legislation forth forbidding the splicing of human DNA with animal DNA. Of course, federally, we have nothing yet. It's going to happen, though. It has to happen. Because I guarantee you what some scientists said they would never do, others are doing right now in the laboratory. Now, that's genetics, okay, transhumanism. And, of course, Part of the idea is that we can just splice the DNA of an eagle with a human. We can create a, a, a human being that has eyesight like an eagle, you know, or the strength of a, of a, you know, a bear or a lion, uh, the smell of a hound dog or whatever it might. The idea is we want to make, is that so good? Uh, do you really want to smell that? Yeah. But it always starts out with a noble cause. But my goodness, think about that, you know, creating a creature, in essence, playing God. God says everything will bring forth that for its kind. Man says, no, we're going to do something. We're going to cause one kind to be spliced with another kind. We'll play God. That's genetics. One observer said, even with these advances, conventional wisdom holds that the mortal body itself can only be kept alive a finite number of years, frustrating the dream of immortality. That's what transhumanists really want, immortality. They realize that, you know, the human body, no matter how much you try to splice it with animal DNA, it's not going to last forever. So let's give rise to another field of transhumanism. Let me read to you. To try to overcome this obstacle, people are researching the idea of melding man and machine to keep one's consciousness alive in perpetuity. This concept is called transhumanism. Well, another branch of it. Transhumanists envision a day, envision a day when technology 
will allow humanity to become so advanced that sickness, disease, poverty, and war will essentially be eradicated. They believe that merging with machines will permit us to become trillions of times more intelligent than we are today, and they also believe that radical life extension technologies will make it possible for, human for humanity to actually achieve immortality. One way they are seeking to accomplish this is by searching for a method that will enable them to store the human mind on a computer. If your entire consciousness could be uploaded into a computer, it could conceivably later be downloaded into a futuristic avatar of some sort once that technology has been developed, end quote. Just like in the movie Avatar, right? Where that Marine paralyzed from the waist down. His consciousness was uploaded into the body of another creature. Of course, that was done through sorcery, but they, they feel that they can do something like that eventually through technology. One author says, but transhumanists don't just stop there. They believe that eventually we will possess such superhuman powers and will enjoy such radical life extension technologies that we will essentially be like God. And guys, that is ultimately the goal. Man has always wanted to be God. God started in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? That wasn't that the carrot that Satan dangled in front of Eve? You will not surely die. You will become like God. Some of them are honest enough to admit that's what their goal is. Humanist Mark Pesci openly states that he believes that transhumanism will allow us to become as gods. The following is what one participant stated at a recent conference about transhumanism and religion. He said, and I'm quoting him, transhumanism is a thrust toward transcendence. So it's man's endeavor to become God. Hey, let me close with this. Remember in Revelation chapter 13, verses 12 to 15, remember we read how the Antichrist and false prophet put up an image or a statue in the Holy of Holies? Remember that? and how they have power to give it life, it becomes alive? Could this image be some kind of machine or computer or robot that they are able to infuse with human consciousness and intelligence? And if so, could this be the prototype of a super race that will have incredible power and intelligence? Listen, a race of people that will be the perfect combination of machine and human consciousness who will live forever as gods upon the earth. At least that's what the Antichrist is telling them is going to happen. And possibly one of the reasons they are following him so enthusiastically as he brings out this image of whatever this thing is and suddenly is the power to give it life and everyone starts to worship the Antichrist. Could it be that he is promising them eternal life because he can upload their consciousness into an image or a machine or something, and they will live forever. You say, is that really going to happen? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't believe the Lord is going to let it get that far. I believe it was going on in Noah's day, something to the effect, okay, we don't know exactly what it was, but man playing God in some way was going on in Noah's day, and God didn't let it go on too long. He destroyed the entire world with a flood. And guys, listen to me. God's going to do it again in our day. It's happening. It's, it's all around us. 
And as man tried to play God back in Noah's day, and God wiped out the human race with a worldwide judgment called the flood, he's going to wipe out the human race again in another worldwide judgment. Read the book of Revelation, chapter 6 to 19. Listen to me as we, we're done. God will not allow man to play God in whatever shape or form that takes. You don't have to be fooling around with genetics or uploading consciousnesses to robots to be playing God. Anyone who refuses to bow the knee to the true and living God is a rebel living a defiant life in the face of God. And God says, look, all the gods with a little g are going to be judged someday. In fact, he said through Jeremiah, because Jeremiah lived at a time when pagan worship was so incredibly rife throughout, Jerusalem, throughout Israel, and everyone thought themselves a god, okay? In a sense that they were running their own lives. And God said through Jeremiah, he said, look, you tell all those folks, all those gods with a little g, God with a big g, is saying, if you didn't create heaven and earth, you are not God which means you are a grasper after godhood, you are a false god, and if you do not repent, I will judge you and remove you from the earth. And so that's what we see going on around us, guys. We are living in a very godless generation. I can't, I don't know what it was like in those days, but honestly, as I read the newspaper and watch the news, I can't see how it could be any worse than what we're seeing in our culture today. So I believe the judgment of God is getting very near which means the rapture of God's people is getting even nearer. So whatever time is left, let's be Noah, okay? Let's be preachers of righteousness, living a godly life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your great mercy. But Lord, we realize even your mercy will come to an end someday. And your judgment will fall. You are a merciful and gracious God. You desire for all men and women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You are long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But Lord, even your great mercy and grace comes to an end at one point, and judgment will fall, because you're a righteous God. You have to punish sin, even though you love sinners, and want to see them saved. You're reaching out your hand to them and saying, Come to me. Forsake that life of sin or rebellion. Become my child. I will take care of you. I will love you. I will provide for you. And someday you'll live with me in my kingdom forever. What an offer, Lord. What grace. We thank you, Father, that we have received our Savior. I think everyone in this room has received you, Lord Jesus. And if they, anyone hasn't, Father, work in their hearts. Show them how desperately they need to get right with you and quickly. But Lord, thank you that you've redeemed us. Thank you that you've given us a new way of thinking, a new outlook of life, a new worldview. We are not earth dwellers anymore. We are sojourners and pilgrims passing through. Our home is in heaven. And so, Lord, thank you. And give us grace, Lord, to be lights in whatever time is left, to reach out to those who are lost. They're not our enemies. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And we just ask you, Lord, to give us grace and love for them. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.